Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder, you know, joining us, you know, a founder that has done it multiple times. Uh, and uh, now he's on his uh, latest, you know, company. The last one, you know, he was able to achieve a $1.5 billion valuation, which he took public. So again, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about building, scaling, financing, also turning page, you know, and, and, and going into a new chapter, as well as, you know, learning how to differentiate around the skills, you know, that you may need to build things, how, how to think about incremental change or how to think about innovation, and then also how to keep going, you know, as an entrepreneur, because we all know that uh, it's not easy. It's not a straight line. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alex Twick. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alexandre. Real pleasure to be here. So originally born in the UK. You know, brought up in and raised in the Midlands in the UK. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Oh, it was great. I mean, uh, I enjoyed life in the in the UK. It was, uh, you know, almost a, you know a really good childhood. Um, had you know a great a great life, great opportunity, um, and uh, you know, but it's a little place, the Midlands. You know, the UK is a, a small place, and you know, I was keen to see the rest of the world. So in your case, you know, it's interesting because you decided to leave school at 18 and then work as a tea boy. So tell us about this decision. Yeah. So, um, look, I, um, uh, you know, I went through, uh, I went through school like everybody does, um, did my A-levels as, as they're called in the UK. Um, uh, didn't do particularly well in them because I discovered cars and girls along the way, and uh, that you know distracted me quite considerably. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, my dad always told me, uh, "Go and work where the money is. Go and work in a bank." Um, and so uh, he was an electronic engineer, uh, and so had um, built our first uh, computer on the dining room table when I was eight years old. Uh, you know, an Apple One. Um, so I taught myself to code out of a book when I was about eight. Um, and then, you know, I took his advice in the end and, and, and went to work for the bank. Uh, in those days, you know, it was very traditional old UK bank. Um, you have to go, you started at the very bottom. And I literally made the tea twice a day for the whole office and used to take it round. Um, and you had to work your way up to get onto the, onto the counter. You know, that was, that was like three jobs in when you got onto the counter. Um, but it was a great learning experience. It was the probably the best thing that ever happened to me because um, in those days, you it was like a proper apprenticeship. You had to go through and do every single role in the bank, everything from you know uh, printing checkbooks like you did when I first started, all the way through to securities investments, foreign exchange, lending, um, and they made you go through your um, your banking exams as well. So I had to study you know, three nights a week at college uh, to get those banking exams. I was just going to ask because, I mean, incredible how you start as a T-boy and, and then you go into, you know, launching, you know, your own companies. But I guess before even that, you know, it took you about, you know, almost a decade 
to really be able, or around a decade, to be able to really bump into the concept of Neobank, which kind of like started your journey, you know, to as an entrepreneur. So this was with Egg. So tell us about what really captured, you know, what, what, what triggered that excitement, that passion, that interest, you know, around neobanking where you were involved with EggBank? Well, an old colleague of mine um, uh, uh, introduced me to, to EggBank and said, you know, um, uh, we're going to do something really special here. We're going to, you know, uh, change the way that banking is viewed in the UK um, and we're going to do uh, it all as a direct bank, um, you know, in the old days of having branches and everything else that I'd have been used to, um, uh, you know, this was this was something that was um, a game changer. Um, so, you know, I I sort of I've always liked to explore new things and try new things. So, you know, it was always a bit of a gamble because you know it could have gone horribly wrong. Um, but the Prudential, uh, who's the biggest insurer in the, in the UK, um, were sort of backing uh, uh, backing Egg, um, and um, so uh, I sort of you know um, threw my chips in uh, and went all in and um, joined the team there uh, to help uh, to help launch uh, to launch Egg, and it was the, a fabulous experience for me. It really was something that opened my eyes to. Um, a whole new way of doing things, you know, the whole uh, cultural experience, a whole way of thinking differently around innovation, um, a whole new way of uh, creating customer propositions and actually, you know, working from the customer experience back, you know, working from customer outcomes back to, you know, what is, what are you going to build? Um, you know, when we first started, you know, the it was in, you know, Sort of dot com boom, you know, um, the infrastructure for this stuff didn't exist, um, you know. So, uh, you know, the, the, we, we were strapping together servers, building data centers, um, creating, you know, new technology propositions, creating entire new customer propositions, um, and creating an entirely new business culture, um, which I think was the thing that really. Uh, energize the whole organization most i mean you know as a as a as a as a banker you know i used to i used to get told off for undoing my top button on my shirt in the branch you know this is on some of the hottest days if you have hot days in England, but you know hottest days in England, you know, that used to be frowned upon um <laughs> you know and, and and you know you, you were pretty much uh, excommunicated if you rolled your sleeves up i mean that was like execution um so to go to Egg, where we, you know, it was completely um, uh, casual dress, you know, and this was in the late 90s. You know, this, this was not something that happened in any business, um, you know, uh, but the executive team there, the leadership team there was so forward thinking and, you know, created an environment where people could really flourish and grow uh, and actually do new things. And that for me was... Um, uh, the turning point, and that's how I got introduced to Neobank, uh, and that well, was my talk, talk, talking about the turning point. Here was because you had the opportunity of uh, working in places like Boston or New York, you know, as part of this experience. But there was a phone call that you got, you know, that changed the course of everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'd, I'd left, I'd left uh, Egg and uh, gone over to work in Boston for a couple of years. 
Um, and I got a phone call from a headhunter in Australia saying um, uh, the National Australia Bank, they're thinking of launching a direct bank. They think you might know something about that. Have you ever thought of living in Australia? And I said, no. <laughs> um, very long story short, I never thought uh, I never thought my wife Alison would uh, agree to moving to Australia. But um, it turns out she was quite excited about the whole thing. And uh, 12 weeks later, uh, me, Alison, and the three children were coming on the plane for Australia for the first time um, to um, uh, to help build uh, what is now Ubank, which is the National Australia Bank's digital arm. Which is uh, incredible because I mean obviously that uh, that 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 U Bank that you're alluding to. I mean now you know if it could be worth you know put a valuation or a price tag, you know we're talking about multiple billions, which is remarkable. How was the the experience of building something you know for the first time? You know, and obviously you had the the big umbrella you know uh, above you, so it was you know it was more like uh, you had a parachute, right? If things were not to work well, not like doing anything without the backing, you know, or the resources and or the capital. But how was it like, you know, this first entrepreneurial or intrapreneurial type of journey? Oh, it was, um, you know, everybody, everybody talks about entrepreneurial activity and um, it is very different and very the same as entrepreneurial activity. The differences are, um, particularly inside a very large organization, is politics. Um, you have to deal with the internal politics of an organization um, much more than you have to do when you're doing an entrepreneurial business. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, we were trying to create a new bank um, inside of it. Now, there's lots of people that work inside that bank that think their bank's actually quite a good, thank you very much. And why do we need a new one? And, um, you know, why, why should I help you take my customers away? Right. Um, why should I help you take the investment that you're that throw away from me um, that, you know, I, you know, I can prove I need because I've got customers, you know, but you're going to spend a lot of money on building something new for no customers. Right. So it's a very, very different experience. But the, the challenges of actually building, trying to decide what to build, creating a brand, creating a customer proposition, innovating around that proposition and actually um, taking a product to market are pretty much exactly the same. Um, you know, there are things that aren't the same. You know, you don't have to go through, uh, you know, uh, raising venture capital. Um, that's, a, you know, that's a huge difference. Um, and, but it also is a huge problem because most folk that work in large organizations are used to this very familiar process of, you know, um, I'm going to start a new project. I need some money for the project. I'm going to go to some internal committee to get that money for the project. If I run out of money, I'll go back to the committee. And generally speaking, it's a, um, a fairly uh, easy process, certainly in comparison to raising VC capital. Right? And the consequences of getting it wrong are significantly better, easier, right? Um, now, that generally makes people inside large organizations who are trying to do things differently, it makes it really hard because the processes inside large organizations for, for, for spending money aren't there 
for doing things differently. They're only there for doing things the way they've always been done. And so creating um, an environment in which you can actually drive through those processes and create a way that you can create value for that organization, avoid what I call the antibodies in, in large organizations. You know, you know, everybody is there to help, right? <laughs> Until they're not. And you know that you know that's when it becomes it. That's when it becomes an issue. Now you convert that to um, you know the entrepreneurial side of things. Um, you're starting from a um, a much lower base. You don't have the support mechanisms available to you. But the the ideation, the creation process, the drive, the tenacity that you still need or you need in both of those is pretty much the same. So then in this case for you, I mean, you, you did that for quite a bit, you know, we're talking about five years and yeah. eventually you decide to uh, turn page, you know, obviously it was a really good uh, exposure here into how the whole, you know, building and scaling, you know, could look like, but then you did a couple of years, you know, in corporate uh, until you receive a um, kind of like a, like a, like a, like a call of some sorts from these uh, friends that you were working with that were taking a look at the way that things were unfolding with UK banking licenses. So one thing led to the next, and then all of a sudden you decide to mortgage everything. So so what, what was that conviction? You know, walk us through that thought process that led to the launch of Yuda Bank. Yeah, so uh, Joseph Ely and David Hornery were looking at uh, what was going on in uh, APRA, which is the UK regulator just past the GFC, about them, uh, sorry, the, um, the PRA rather, uh, issuing licenses uh, to new banks, uh, particularly Aldermore and Shorterbrook, which were the SME focused banks in, in the UK. Um, and we had an inkling that the uh, APRA, who's the Australian regulator, would do would follow suit and start to uh, start to do the same thing, start to issue new licenses. So yeah, so um, the thinking was well, there is very little banking competition in Australia. Uh, there's four major banks which own ninety percent of the market uh, in retail and commercial banking. Um, they have gone through a process of um, de-skilling and taking out costs from their organisations um, because you know they're 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 all pretty much ex-growth. So the only way that they can drive the bottom line is to deliver cost savings. Um, we'd had a, a huge royal commission into the ethical behaviour of the banks here in Australia. Um, so the timing was perfect for a new entrant. The timing was perfect for somebody that could actually get in, um, you know, really provide what customers wanted, which was face-to-face -face relationship banking, business banking, um, uh, uh, helping uh, customers to with their businesses and helping them create, you know, the the, the capital structures that would enable them to grow. Um, which all of the big banks had, had pulled back from. You know, unless you wanted to borrow $2 million from a big bank in Australia, you had to ring call centre, right? Um, now, what we wanted to do was provide that high-quality service back to customers, which is what they actually wanted, um, but also 
to be able to do that, you needed to take the cost out of the business. You needed to be able to put the costs where the customers wanted it, which was in the frontline bankers. And so what we tried to do from there was um, digitize everything behind the banker. So rather than, rather than digitizing the banker and having all the back office manual processes, we wanted to swap the thing around. Um, and that's where the strategy, the technology strategy for Judo came in, which was um, kept being come to be known as everything as a service. But uh, we managed to create uh, the world's first born in the cloud bank. Um, uh, you know, uh, didn't own a single server, didn't employ a single developer, bolted together over 50 software as a service platforms to create an end to end banking proposition in less than 18 months. What that meant was it gave you a, an incredible cost structure um, to run the business. Um, and it's always a bit of a stretch, um, you know, but the original, the original vision was that, um, you know, a banker could go out to a customer's premises, could look around the factory, um, look at the books, um, agree a deal, uh, and go back to their car in the car park, complete all the documentation on their iPhone and send it to the customer before they left. That was the, that was their original vision. Now we didn't quite get exactly there, but we got pretty close. Right, so to be able to create that um, that process so empowered bankers that could make real decisions um, and actually uh, interact with customers in the way they wanted um, with a with a business bank that had the cost structure of a you know of a digital business that was that was the model that was the key opportunity um, and uh, you know it it went it went very well. Um, you know, we took that business from PowerPoint to um, a one and a half billion dollar USD IPO. So that was a, that was a, that was a fantastic journey. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process, and it's very hard. And already doing your business alone. It's super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And before the IPO, what was the, um, what was the total amount that you guys had raised? Uh, in USD, it would be about um, half, uh, five hundred million. So, what was the uh, what was that journey like too of raising money? Because that was a new a new thing for you. 
Oh, look, that was uh, a, a very big eye-opener all round for the whole team. Um, you know, there was... Uh, it was a tremendous effort to raise that amount of money and trying to get it out of Australia was almost impossible. Uh, the VC community in Australia is is nowhere near as advanced as it is uh, in the US or the UK. Um, and, you know, we're raising money for a bank, right? So it's not like we're raising money for, you know, a small tech startup. Um, you have to have you know, liquidity capital for the regulators. You have to, you know, you have to have capital to actually be able to lend to customers. So there's a huge um, ongoing need. A bank is a very capital hungry business. There's a huge ongoing need to raise capital. Um, so you know, the you know the amount of capital needed to re to build the business in the first place was relatively small in comparison to the amount of capital we needed to raise to actually run the business and drive it forward. Um, what that meant was that, you know, um, uh, particularly David Hornery um, was, you know, he was on a plane going to the UK, the US, uh, the Middle East, um, virtually every week, um, you know, and trying to build relationships with uh, with the VCs. Um, the key thing there was, though, was about creating uh, long-term trusted relationships with those VCs. So, you know, you know, I think David tells a great story, you know, when you turn up for the first time, you know, they sit there with their notebook and, uh, you know, write down everything you say. Um, uh, and the second time you go back, they get their old notebook out and they go, oh, you told us this last time. And, oh, look, you're telling us the same thing again. That's good. And, and then you go back the third time and the fourth time. And, you know, you have to keep doing what you said you would do, um, you know, to be able to. Uh, get confidence in that that you're not you know just flitting from idea to idea and you're moving around that you're showing a, a, a level of consistency and reliability and that you can deliver on the execution of what you want to do and that was i think the thing that opened the gates for us eventually um but like every good startup you know we came twice uh to you know being 24 hours away from bankruptcy <laughs> uh, you know once one of our major investors dropped out literally on Christmas Eve uh, and just disappeared, uh, never to be seen again, um, which which meant our whole round um, collapsed because we had to find somebody to replace that. Luckily, we did. It took it took six weeks to get that back and into running, but that was you know that literally was a, a, a near death experience. You know, earlier than that, you know, we'd literally got down to the last thousand dollars that we had left in the bank to pay the team when we uh, when we eventually found a, a group of family offices uh, down here in, in in australia that would uh, support us um and if it wasn't for them uh, judo wouldn't exist um you know and, and that's you know and i think every founder has these stories right every founder has uh you know similar uh, near-death experiences and um but you know, you, you have to keep pushing forward and have to keep driving the driving the business. Um, and you know, the, the once you get through that capital raising process, um, or once you get on the on the you know the first rung of the ladder of that capital raising process, you know, it's not it doesn't end there. Um, even for a, a non-hungry bank, yeah, a non-hungry business capital business that isn't a bank, you know. 
A rounds, B rounds, C rounds, you know, trying to keep through that process, keeping relationships with those investors, keeping, um, you know, uh, everybody moving forward with the organization in the way that you want is, is, is vital. You know, you could almost, you know, you could almost say capital raising for a founder is a full time job. Um, and, and then you've got to build the business. <laughs> it really is. It in, really in is. Your, in, your, uh, in your spare time. <laughs> It really is. You don't want to leave the business hanging. Obviously, you know, the investors are expecting you to keep pushing. Now, obviously, the company ended up going public, as you were alluding to, a $1.5 billion valuation at the peak. But then eventually for you, you know, you like building things. So at what point do you realize, hey, I think maybe, you know, it's time to turn the page here? Oh, look, I'm a, as I said, you can hear from my sort of career history, I'm a, I'm a serial builder of things. And I... Um, I just, you know, once you get to the point where uh, you're into, let's not call it business as usual, but where you're now in incremental growth as opposed to exponential growth, um, you know, that's when I, uh, you know, like to find new challenges. Um, and so um, I, I left judo just before the IPO um, and went up to uh, Singapore to help the uh, the Standard Chartered Bank um, get a digital license from the uh, the regulator there. So the first digital new digital license to be issued in Singapore, um, and that was right in the middle of COVID. Um, so that was a re that was an incredible experience. So um, you know I was due to head up to Singapore and you know go to live up there for a couple of years and help them with that, and couldn't go because everything shut down. Um, and so uh, I ended up having to uh, build a team, um, create a platform, um, and um, get a banking license from a regulator without ever leaving my home office in Sydney, in a different country. Um, and that, you know, through the middle of a pandemic, uh, that was a very different experience um, and puts a whole new level of, of sort of complexity into things. Um, you know that that bank now is uh, is 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 well and truly launched. It's called Trust Bank. Uh, incredible, you know, incredible uptake um, there. You know, I think they got a million customers in their first six weeks. Um, you know, it's absolutely going uh, again gangbusters. Um, uh, in a, as a joint venture with um, the Fair Price Group, uh, which is a supermarket chain, in, the leading supermarket chain in, uh, in in Singapore. In you know another great learning experience for me, you know, trying to deal with yet another geography, another set of cultures, another way of building a proposition through a different um, market segment um, and the different sort of uh, cultural aspect of that market segment. Um, you know, I was very lucky to understand the. The supermarket side of things through my time at Woolworths, um, but you know I love building things, and that that was a, another great experience, which um, you know uh, you know is leads me on to my next uh, my next adventure. Well, let's talk about the next one. Eh? What's the next one? Well, the next one is uh, uh, a no-code platform. So it's a software business as opposed to a bank this time. So it's, as I said, my previous life, I've sort of always. Uh, lived in this grey area between, you know, hardcore banker and um, and 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 uh, technology. Um, and so this time I'm flipping to the other side of the equation. Um, but if you if you think back to what we did at Judo and building um, a banking platform 
by bolting together 50 software as a service applications. Um, that has some great benefits, which we've already talked about, but it also, in the long term, has some downsides. Now, for Judo, those downsides weren't particularly uh, significant because when you think about software as a service, um, the reason why you can get the cost benefits out of it is um, because somebody else has made the investments in the platform. Somebody else is paying for that and you're spreading those costs around all of their customers. As soon as you try and change the platform, though, the software platform, um, you end up basically getting the worst of both worlds. You get a platform that you don't own and you get a and you get all the costs associated with building and maintaining the platform. So you've got to stay really vanilla to the platform. Now, this is great from a judo perspective because our customer interactions were driven by the bankers. Um, but in most other organizations, um, your customer interactions now are primarily driven by the digital interactions, whether they be web, phone, app, whatever it may be. Uh, and what you're seeing is the, the SaaS software landscape change, and it changed in the time we did Udo. So in, when it first started, it was, you know, you got the customer experience that you got. But now most SaaS platforms are turning to, um, you know, headless SaaS platforms. They will offer a, a digital customer experience, but they're saying to you, um, here's our API catalog, um, build your own digital experience on top of that. Now, um, that's fine. Um, and, you know, if you've got an ecosystem of those SaaS platforms, you've now got an ecosystem of APIs to deal with. And then what you have to do is then you have to create a, um, uh, a technology team that's capable of, of building a digital experience on top of those APIs. Now, so you, now you're getting the worst of both worlds again. Now you've got all those development costs, you've got all the risks and everything associated with it. So what we started to think about with my, my co-founder, James Ladd, is how do we create um, a SaaS experience as a service platform so that enables um, non-technical folk to create digital experiences for customers and orchestrate over the APIs of um, headless SaaS platforms? So that you now you, you get back to actually the benefits, the original benefits that you were talking about. And we started to look into this and, um, and um, you know, we wanted to, you know, that, that, that puts it in the framework of a no-code platform, right? Um, now, when you look at the, the ecosystem of no-code platforms out there today, there's lots of them, right? And I, I talk about a continuum. At one end of the spectrum, you, you have the big end of town, you know, Uncorked, Mendix, Appian, uh, et cetera. Um, and they are really low-code platforms. They're not no-code platforms. Um, they produce high-quality code. They will work inside of an enterprise software delivery lifecycle model. Um, and, you know, but you need to be a highly skilled engineer to use them. So, you know, that um, makes your existing engineering teams highly productive, but it doesn't really solve the problem that you're talking about. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got um, what are called the citizen developer platforms. Uh, so Bubble, Airtable, um, uh, Make, uh, etc. Those are the ones that sort of sit at the other end of the spectrum. Now, they're brilliant at democratizing software development. Um, you know, they allow almost anybody to learn to use them and they, you can create websites and apps and stuff. Their biggest challenge is that they're 
generally being designed for um, or being have a challenge with the non-functional components of, of things. So they don't scale particularly well. They're not particularly secure. Um, reliability, etc., are the issues. So they're great for small MVPs. They're great for you know building small businesses and uh, and stuff. But they don't really live in the in the enterprise world. The problem that both ends of the spectrum share is that which actually they share with traditional software development is that you have to build things three times. You know, once for the web, once for Android, once for iOS, maybe once for Salesforce, maybe once for SAP, and so you end up with this. You know, that's a multiplier effect. You know, you have three teams, got three lots of support, three lots of different processes, all the stuff that goes on. So what we try to do with, with Apeggio in a nutshell is create an enterprise-grade citizen developer platform that enables you to design once and deploy to all of those platforms for the same effort. So that's really the, 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 you know, the one-sentence uh, helicopter pitch for, for Apeggio. Um, and, uh, you know, James and I have built banks for the last 30 years, right? So we only know how to build enterprise bank-grade platforms. So one, one of the things that, that, that you also have as a, as a builder, as an entrepreneur, is to really understand, too, um, what it makes sense to keep going, right? And how to keep going. Uh, and I'm sure that this is something that many of the people that are listening right now are wondering. So. What are your thoughts on this? Oh, for for an entrepreneur, I think the the resilience and the ability to keep going are the number one skill that you need. Um, you know, the amount of things that go wrong, rejections, um, you know, outweigh the the things that go right. You know, ninety nine to one. Um, you know, it, it is it's not a straight road. Um, I always remember an old mentor of mine in Egg. Um, uh, told me once, he said, I asked him, so what are we going to do? And he said, I don't know. Um, and I said, well, what do you mean you don't know? Surely you must know what we're going to do. And he said, no, um, the analogy I've got for you is this, which is I know we're going to, I know we're going to America and we're traveling uh, west, but I don't know what the journey is going to look like. And for me, that is the perfect example of um, how every founder gets through this process. Um, knowing what the destination is, knowing uh, what your goal is and how it's, you know, how great it's going to be when you get there, but having very little clue of the journey that you're going to go on and the twists and turns that are going to come along the way, the roadblocks, you know, the near-death experiences, the, you know, the, the sales that you thought were bolted on disappear, you know, the, fan, the funding that, that disappears. Um, and you know, it's very much, uh, you know, and I always talk about this when it comes to the difference between people that live in the corporate world and how well they can um, migrate to being an entrepreneur. Um, you know, the level of uncertainty and ambiguity that you face as, a, as an entrepreneur is enormous, where the levels of ambiguity and uncertainty in a large corporate organization are relatively pretty small and you know i've i've got it probably now I've, I've probably got my success rate up to 50 percent of people that i can pick in large organizations that can make the leap into into startups i, I was at 20 percent when i first started this um 
But, you know, most, you know, I've had people, you know, that have had fantastic corporate careers that have joined startups and, you know, run screaming from the building after a month going, you lot are mad. Right? I can't deal with this. Right? This, this is just too hard. It doesn't compute. Um, and so, you know, you've got to be able to be, be cope with that level of, of uncertainty uh, and ambiguity and be able to create within it. Be able to, you know, consistently think on your feet and turn negatives into positives um, and not have to look for, um, you know, affirmation that you're making the right decision all the time. You've got to really be reliant, completely reliant on yourself. So then, so then in that case, you know, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, maybe to that moment where, you know, your, your, your friends, you know, were calling you, you know, to perhaps, you know, start what ended up becoming judo, a bank. And let's say you had an opportunity to go there and, and give yourself one piece of advice before launching, you know, any type of company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Um... The one piece of advice, and you might think this is odd, but the one piece of advice I'd give myself is um, make sure that you have had really open conversations with your partner and your family about the amount of time, effort, distraction, um, risk, uh, and and general stress that comes with um, building any sort of business. It outstrips anything in the corporate world. Um, and you have to have really supportive family group around you. Uh, I mean, I'm incredibly lucky to, to have Alison and my family, uh, you know, they've supported me in every silly adventure I've ever taken on. Um, uh, and they know that, you know, I do crazy stuff and, uh, you know, you know, I've work 24 seven sometimes and you know and that i'll be on planes getting off to stupid places different places but that's for that's the the biggest thing for me and you know um you can cope with most other stuff but if you're if you haven't got that support at home if you haven't got a, a partner and a family that understand why you're doing this stuff it's 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 impossible and I've seen, right. I've seen many uh, of my friends go through an awful lot of pain because of it. I can totally see that. I can totally see that, Alex. So for the people that are listening, I would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Um, uh, email alex at apeggio.com. It's A-P-P-E-G-G-I-O apeggio.com. You see, enough. Well, hey, Alex, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for having me on. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.